I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Rob Lustig. Rob is a pediatric endocrinologist, scientist, advocate, and author. He came to great public attention in 2009 when he gave a talk called Sugar, the Bitter Truth that went viral on YouTube with now over 3 million views. Rob spent the early part of his career working on understanding the role of the brain in sensing hunger signals. His research has touched on many areas of metabolism, but his most recent work has focused on the role of sugar, a particular kind of sugar called fructose, in the emerging obesity epidemic. He has become a passionate advocate for real and whole foods. Rob has also written two books. The first, published in 2013, was called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. Rob's second book has significant overlap with last week's guest, Roger McNamee, whom he mentioned in our conversation. This book is called The Hacking of the American Mind, and it explores the differences between happiness and pleasure, and how these differences are being exploited by technology companies and food companies and others to, as he says, confuse us. Our conversation was wide-ranging, as we touched on many seemingly disparate topics, but I think you will see that there are common threads throughout. I hope and expect it will be obvious why Rob was someone I was so excited to interview and how his life, his work, his writings all reflect best-known methods. I wanted to be an astronomer since I was like five years old. I took courses at the Hayden Planetarium when I was a kid. I used to ride the train from Brooklyn into Manhattan on Saturday mornings, back when you could ride the train. And then after that, uh, because that was up on 81st and Central Park West, I would go down to 59th Street and 5th Avenue because the GM cars were in the GM building and FAO Schwartz was next door. And I would spend the rest of the afternoon, you know, basically playing and then go home. That was, you know, till I was about 11, 12. And so I was going to be an astronomer. And I don't know, I think my grandmother did it because I remember my parents sitting me down in my grandmother's house and they said, Bobby, we don't care what you want to be or what you do with your life as long as you're happy. And my grandmother would then pipe up, but a doctor makes so much money. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, I always wanted to do something to help people. I wasn't sure how. I remember doing a term paper in seventh grade on the hypothalamus. And back then, they had just figured out the first releasing factor, you know, Guillaume and Chalet. So it was like a big deal. Like, oh my God, the brain controls hormones. And that really sort of captured my imagination. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to be a hypothalamus doctor. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. I became a hypothalamus doctor. So that's kind of where I got into it. All right. So explain to people what a seventh grader thinks about a hypothalamus. Um, it was a part of the brain that controlled hormones. And at that point, we 
understood that hormones controlled your body. We didn't quite understand that it controlled your behavior, too. Uh, that was an added plus that came out probably in the 70s, 80s. And I ended up doing a neuroendocrine fellowship at Rockefeller to try to understand sexual differentiation of the brain, to understand how hormones controlled behavior, why boys are boys and girls are girls from the neck up. And I did that for about 15 years, always recognizing that the number of patients that I would ultimately deal with on that were relatively few and far between. And this was, of course, when the obesity epidemic was burgeoning. And I had a thought about it, about the idea that leptin was uh, somehow not working. Then the data came in that said, indeed, leptin levels are plenty high in the obese. They were not deficient. They were resistant. And I had a thought about how that might be in terms of insulin, and because I, I was seeing these kids with brain tumors who were becoming massively obese after their uh, therapy was complete. And I thought, well, gee, they have the ultimate leptin resistance. Their brain can't see their leptin, so their brain thinks they're starving. And so we tested that back in the late 90s. And that got me basically to ditch all the sex differentiation of the brain stuff and spend the rest of my career researching obesity, metabolic syndrome, nutrition, and everything that came downstream of that. So when I was at St. Louis Children's, I was really bothered. It really bothered me that these privates, private doctors, were dictating therapy almost to the exclusion of factual data. I was really bothered by how they treated asthmatics, how they treated uh, a lot of the different chronic diseases that we were taking care of. And I said, you know, something's wrong here. I don't know what the incentive for how they're doing it is, but it seemed like they, they had the wrong incentive. I thought to myself, they don't care about the truth. And it actually drove me to go to Rockefeller, where I said, you know, these are PhDs. They care about the truth. They, you know, they will alter their theories to conform to the latest data because they are searching for the truth. And so I went to Rockefeller with that expectation that I was, you know, would be around people who, you know, were as fastidious about the truth as I was. And I was sorely disappointed. I mean, in some ways, it was really the most horrible negative revelation of my life was that they were not interested in the truth. They were interested in their truth. Okay, hold on. Let, let's unpack that a little bit. So when you were a resident, you were working with clinicians yep. and they were making decisions based on opinion and gut and all these other things that we're now taught are bad. Right. And you thought, I, I need to go like learn science from people who know something. Truth. Yeah. And you got to Rockefeller, one of the best organizations of biology in, in the world, in the history of the world. And you're saying that there they didn't, they weren't interested in truth either. That's right. In fact, they were less interested in the truth. They were more interested in furthering whatever theory they had glommed onto. And they were very willing to discard virtually anything that did not fit their theory, the ultimate cherry pickers. And was that about the secondary gain of getting more grants and more papers and all the rest of that stuff? Almost assuredly. Mm -hmm. You know, working your way up to a Nobel Prize. 
I was very, very disgusted in the non-collegiality and in the lack of debate. I, it, it, was, it was truly a negative revelation. Did you notice that then or did you? Oh, I noticed it did. then. Oh, I sure did. Hmm. No, and, and within three years, I wanted out. So then what did you I do? ended up staying six, but uh, I could not in good conscience feel good about what I was doing because I saw how things worked and it was not good. So you had an experience where you were trained in clinical medicine and you felt like, God, this is, this is suboptimal. We're not, we're making things up as we go along. Indeed. And then you thought, oh, I need to get in the lab and th- there'll be the, that's going to be Nirvana. And you found the exact same thing. So then how did you end up deciding what you were going to do next? What was, well, the one thing I realized was I had to do some patient care and that Rockefeller was prevented from doing patient care. I actually uh, was uh, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Cornell University Medical College, where I went to medical school for one week. One week. Uh, Maria New, who was the chairman of the Department of Pediatrics, who was my medical school mentor. I was there at Rockefeller. I was a postdoc. I had just gotten KOA award. I was going to be there for a little while. And I um, went to her and I said, you know, I want to attend in clinic and you don't have to pay me anything. I I want the experience. I want to get back to patient care. Um, You don't have to give me a desk. You don't have to give me a salary. You don't have to give me a friggin' coat hanger. Just give me the appointment and I'll be a 20% clinician and I'll attend two months a year and I'll go to clinic once a week and, you know, I'll keep my research at Rockefeller so you don't have to give me a lab or anything. And you know what she said? She said, okay. And I was for one week. And then the president of Rockefeller, Joshua Letterberg, found out about it. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting on a stool watching an HPLC run in Smith Hall near Cosmo Rockefeller. And Letterberg's secretary comes and says, Dr. Letterberg would like to see you right now. I go, uh, right now? She says, right now. So I'm in the middle of this HPLC, right now. So I trudge along behind her. I go to Letterberg's office. He's staring at the biggest computer screen I've ever seen in my entire life at that point. I mean, you know, it actually dwarfs, you know, the, the biggest TVs we have now. I don't know where he got it. It was like Captain Nemo at the typewriter in front of this thing. It was just surreal. I walk in. He goes, oh. Lustig, yeah. Uh, you can't do this. I can't do what? Uh, you can't be on both sides of the street at the same time. I go, uh, why not? He says, because I won't let you. Why not? He says, because, number one, I don't want any lawsuits following you across the street. And number two, if you're so interested in clinical medicine, go be a doctor. Get out of here. How old were you at the time? Uh, that was 1987. I was 30. So what would you do? Well, I had my KO8, and I started looking for jobs. It took a while before I found uh, one that I could manage. And I moved to the University of Wisconsin in 1990, uh, where I was an assistant professor, you know, first faculty job. And was that job the same thing that you had envisioned the job was going to be at Cornell? You were doing a mix of clinical medicine and lab? Yeah. So I had a lab. You know, I start a package. Uh, you know, I was, you know, it's all about grants. I understood that, you know, I went in, you know, with my eyes wide open on that score, but I thought, you know, things would go well. And uh, what I found was that sex differentiation of the brain didn't pay very well. 
I ended up um, not getting any money for my sex differentiation work. And I remember uh, being called into my chairman's office at University of Wisconsin after five years. I had submitted four grants in the span of three months, and they all came back rejected within the span of one week. And I was called into his office, and there was my tenure committee. And the chairman you know, said, no grant, no tenure, no exceptions. Six words. Wow. So at that point, what did you do? So I thought to myself, well, that might be the end of my research career. I'm a neuroendocrinologist. What is my clinical bread and butter? Brain tumors. And where are the brain tumors? I said, St. Jude. And so I got in the car and went to, went Memphis. to Memphis. And the process got married. And my wife, a nurse practitioner, um, became our endocrine nurse practitioner. <laughs> and so... I worked at both Labonner Children's Medical Center, which is the University of Tennessee Children's Hospital, and at St. Jude, splitting my time and allegiances between the two. Even though Rob did not end up pursuing a career as a basic scientist, working to unravel the mysteries of how the brain controls feeding, and even though his experiences at Rockefeller and at Wisconsin were not ideal, he clearly learned a lot about biology, and those experiences were about to serve him well. See, Rob had observed an interaction between two hormone signaling pathways, insulin and leptin. He believed that the high levels of insulin made in the pancreas were blocking the actions of leptin. And he felt that if he could reduce the insulin, he could restore the normal action of leptin and make a dent on obesity, at least the obesity of these children with broken hypothalamuses. This led him to consider whether a drug that would suppress insulin secretion might help. So he did a small pilot at first using the drug called somatostatin in children with hypothalamic obesity, leading to a call from a mom of one of his patients describing what sounded like a miracle. He went on to do a placebo-controlled, randomized-controlled trial in general obesity and demonstrated that this idea actually worked. If you could reduce insulin, you could improve the action of leptin. And if you could improve the action of leptin, you could improve obesity, or most of it. This work was fundamental and important, and it led to Rob being recruited back to UCSF, where he had done his clinical fellowship many years before, and where he would spend the next 20 years of his career. And it was during this next phase of his career that Rob eventually stumbled onto the idea that sugar itself could contribute to this metabolic mess we're in. In fact, he posited that it might be the missing environmental contributor to insulin resistance, the state where insulin levels were high, but the hormone was not functioning. This is the precursor to type 2 diabetes, and understanding insulin resistance is one of the holy grails of modern medicine. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the brain and eating, because we, we now today understand it, but how, how well understood back in, say, the late 1980s, early 1990s, how much did people think that overeating or obesity was, a, was caused by an abnormality in brain function? Well, in the sense that behavior starts in the brain, we thought Obviously, something must be wrong. If behavior is abnormal, then something in the brain is abnormal. But it was more like a direct effect, like you could control your behavior. So, therefore, it was just a matter of willpower. Right. That's what everyone believed. And to be honest with you, that's about what 90% of the population still believes. You know, we're very slowly chipping away at that. I never believed that. 
you know, I mean, Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize, basically demonstrating that every thought is a protein phosphorylation. There is no behavior without biochemistry. The biochemistry drives the behavior. And when you understand how the brain works, you understand that that's the case. The question is, okay, what drives the biochemistry? And that's where the work started coalescing in the, I would say, early 90s, was the environment is controlling the biochemistry. And ultimately, you know, with the advent of leptin, we were able to demonstrate the intermediary pathway by which that would occur. You know, and we ultimately realized that there was this thing called leptin resistance that was completely environmentally driven. And so now we know that, okay, yes, there is this genetically determined leptin threshold. And what we've learned is that you can then superimpose phenomena that lead to leptin resistance on top of that threshold. So while there's a genetic component, there's also an environmental component. Ultimately, obesity is brain starvation, and it's because your brain doesn't see this hormone that comes from fat cells called leptin. And if your brain sees the leptin, then you burn energy at a normal rate and you slow down your eating because you don't eat anymore. You know this as well as I do. I mean, this you, you, you work in this field directly. But clearly something about the Western diet says to the brain, you're not seeing your leptin. Because if you saw your leptin, you wouldn't be obese. And it's certainly not leptin deficiency, and we can show that. And what you can also show is that people who have high leptins are still obese because their leptin is not working. And then as soon as you try to fast them or, you know, starve them or, you know, reduce their weight, now they're leptin deficient for wherever their new set point is. So now they're leptin deficient on top of being leptin resistant. And that's the recidivism of obesity. And we actually showed that. We, you know, we papers on that, on what happens to resting energy expenditure and food intake when your leptin drops below whatever your new threshold is, which is somewhat environmentally controlled. So I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> that makes sense. And everybody else was saying, no, 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 willpower, willpower. And I was like, screw you. <laughs> it's not All right. right. Let me, it's let not me, right. Let me see if I can summarize. So there's this hormone leptin. That, here's this hormone that's made in fat cells. At, the, at some point in, hist in biomedical history, fat was thought to be just an inert, insulating material. It kept us warm. But it was clear at some, some point later in history that it did more than just that, that it was actively regulating different biological processes. Yep. And so here's this hormone it makes, and the hormone acts on the brain through this receptor called the leptin receptor. And it tells the brain, basically, what's the uh, energy status of the body. That's right. It's like a thermostat. Mm -hmm. It's like a servo mechanism, like your you know, house thermostat. Basically, when you go below a certain threshold, you know, like, just like your thermostat, when, it goes, when the temperature goes down, okay, that's when the heater kicks in. So when your brain sees a leptin below what it considers rational, it thinks your brain is, uh, your body's starving. And in the process, it does a couple of things. The first thing it does is it says, oh, I better conserve. So it ratchets down the sympathetic tone, the part of your body that burns energy, that keeps your muscles working and that keeps you alert and basically wants you to exercise. So 
you feel like a sloth because your energy expenditure goes down, you know, your resting goes down, and also your voluntary goes down because you're trying to conserve. At the same time, it activates the area of your brain, of your hypothalamus, that basically makes you want to eat. So you start chowing down, and that activates the vagus nerve, the vagus nerve being the vegetative part of your autonomic nervous system, which there's a branch that goes to your pancreas that tells your pancreas to make more insulin in order to take what you've eaten, store more fat so that your leptin goes back up. And there's your servo mechanism. That's brilliant. So, well, it actually kind of is, except when it's not. <laughs> and, you know, what we've learned is that there is a floor but no ceiling. So, yes, the servo mechanism kicks in when you go below your threshold. And that's because most of evolution, we haven't had enough to eat. But there's no ceiling, which means you just keep going and going. And the question is, all right, well, then why does this happen? And what allows it to happen? And why is it that all of a sudden now you've got this higher leptin threshold that is now associated with obesity? And if you go below that, now you've got a problem. And how do you modulate that? Because ultimately, if you can modulate that, then you can fix obesity. And through a lot of work uh, that I did basically from 1995 to 2006, both in animals and in humans, we came to the realization that there was a method that the body used to interfere with leptin. And it was called insulin. Insulin is the hormone that causes energy storage. It is your energy storage hormone. That is its job. People think it is the diabetes hormone. No, it's the energy storage hormone. The fact that it controls your blood sugar is kind of secondary. What it's doing is it's clearing out all of the excess substrate that you're not burning right now and saves it for a rainy day. It can save it in the liver. It can save it in the fat tissue. It can save it in the muscle. But the bottom line is it's clearing it for later. It is your rainy day hormone. And the question is, why would insulin block leptin? Because that's what all of the data, you know, these brain tumor kids that I got interested in. And then we started doing the, looking at um, uh, normal adults who don't have brain tumors, except that they were obese, and finding that insulin was blocking their leptin too. And we did it through various clinical manipulations. And so the question is, you know, like, what's the selective advantage for that? Why would God do that to us? And the answer is because it's survival of the species. It's always Darwinian. It's always what keeps uh, mankind going. So we basically showed that insulin blocks leptin. And that led us to, well, everyone's hyperinsulinemic today. And so just so I can understand, chronologically, this is late 1990s-ish? Yeah, 1998, 1999. And, and what you were seeing was that there was this association between high levels of, of insulin in patients with insulin-secreting tumors, or was it? No, no. With, uh, called hypothalamic obesity. So these kids with brain tumors, who are the uh, hypothalamus is basically dead, either from the, the tumor itself or the surgery or the radiation. And these kids become massively obese. And 25 years earlier, George Bray, one of the fathers of obesity research in America, when he was working at UCLA Harbor uh, in Torrance, 
He took eight of these kids and admitted them to their CRC at Harbor, locked them up, threw away the key, and for the next month, fed them 500 calories a day. Now, if you eat 500 calories a day, you're going to lose weight. What do you think these kids did? Well, I'm guessing they didn't lose a lot of weight. They gained weight. Hmm. How do you gain weight on 500 calories a day? Answer, well, if your expenditure is so low, you're going to gain weight. So their brain could not see their leptin. Their brain thought they were starving because the area of the brain that interpreted that leptin signal was dead. So their brain saw only starvation. So it didn't matter how many calories they ate, they were still going to gain weight because they would rather store it than burn it. And that wasn't mediated by insulin. That was just the lack of leptin response, basically. Well, it was mediated by insulin. Ah. Because they couldn't see their leptin, their pancreas, through the vagus nerve, made more insulin. And so we showed that. And then we gave them a drug, which you know well, octreotide, which suppresses growth hormone, but also suppresses insulin as a side effect. And what we did was we suppressed that insulin response, that insulin secretion, and all of a sudden, these patients started losing weight. But something even more remarkable occurred. Not only did they lose weight, it was the first time anybody had ever shown that a hypothalamic obese patient could lose weight, but something even more bizarre. They started exercising spontaneously out of the blue. One kid became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. I mean, these were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos, and slept. And all of a sudden, they're like, woken up. And the parents were like, you know, before anything happened weight-wise. So patient number one, I mean, this was like one of the most bizarre days of my life. Certainly of my career, but of my life. Patient number one went octreotide. And I told the mom to get in touch with me, um, you know, like in a week. She did. Frantic on the phone. Dr. Lustig, something's happening. I go, oh, my God, you know, major adverse side effect, you know, adverse event, um, you know, shut down the study, go to jail. You know, I'm waiting for the, you know, the shooter. What happened? And she says, well, normally we would go to Taco Bell. And she would eat four tacos and an enchirito, and she'd still be hungry. We just went to Taco Bell, and she ate two tacos, and she was full. And she just vacuumed the house. And I'm going, whoa, vacuum the house? These are kids, you know, who do nothing. They sit on a lock. They, they do not move because their brain thinks they're starving. So they are in constant non energy expending mode and the kid vacuumed the house spontaneously so that was the first sort of inkling that there was more going on you know that leptin was controlling more stuff than just the obvious and that the behaviors that we routinely associate with obesity the gluttony and the sloth were actually biochemically driven i mean i looked at the data and said, you know, this is very clear in this group. You know, either you burn it or you store it. And insulin's the way you store it. And when your insulin's high, you store it. When your insulin's low, you burn it. And we proved it. So the question then was, uh, okay, what does this have to do with general garden variety obesity? What ha- you know, does, does this have any relevance to people without brain tumors? 
And I said, this is really interesting. And I remember they convened a, a research uh, group in New York City to go over the data. And I showed the data and they went, you know, this really is interesting. Maybe there is a role for octreotide in general obesity. We should find out. And so we put together a pilot study. And what was interesting, we, we treated 44 garden variety obese adults with octreotide with no diet change. Not even a slightest recommendation about what to eat or what not. Not nothing. Zero zilcho nada. We did assess their dietary intake, you know, through recall with a dietitian. So, I mean, we were interested in what they were eating, but we didn't give them any dietary advice whatsoever. And we did oral glucose tolerance tests on them all, you know, before. And what we realized was eight out of the 44 patients that we treated lost a lot of weight. And the other 36 didn't. So the question was, what was different about the eight versus the 36? So this was a post hoc analysis. And, you know, obviously, post hoc analyses are fraught with difficulty. And I recognize that. But it was very clear their, their science their data said who they were and their pre-treatment data predicted who would respond and who wouldn't. The responders had this massive insulin rise early on in the glucose tolerance test and then came back down to normal quickly. The patients who did not respond, they had more of like an insulin resistance curve. So we were able to dissociate these two groups within the general garden variety obesity uh, cohort that were different, that responded differently and had different parameters. So that was interesting in and of itself. So then we de developed a double-blind placebo-controlled trial to ask the question, all right, if you know who they are in advance, can you demonstrate efficacy going forward in a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized fashion? And we did. It's hard not to miss what has happened with the obesity epidemic over the past 30 years worldwide, and especially here in the United States. We certainly do not understand all, or maybe even most, of why we are where we are. While it's hard to pin the entire thing on sugar, remember that as late as 1995, the National Nutrition Guidelines said that there was no evidence that sugar contributed to the risk of cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And the guidelines said that eating less sugar would not help people lose weight. Well, Rob was asked by a group of toxicologists to opine about what might be contributing to all this new metabolic disease. And he went to the meeting and told them he thought it was sugar, and particularly fructose. Rob got an unexpected and enthusiastic response from this group of toxicologists. And basically, he did not stop talking about sugar. He talked about how sugar causes damage as a toxin, just like alcohol. Except children don't drink alcohol. He talked, and the world listened. I did ask Rob about one puzzling aspect of it, namely the fact that one of the greatest sources of fructose is fruit. And this introduces one of the key evolutions in Rob's thinking about the role of sugar or fructose in metabolic disease. While sugar is absolutely a toxin, it can be cloaked by fiber, and fiber is found in whole fruit, whole food. And this is Rob's theory about why eating oranges is nowhere near as toxic as drinking orange juice. It's brilliant. Somewhere along the line there, you started getting interested in this other word that 
made you really famous, which is, which is sugar. What, how did that happen? So it was very clear to me that something about the Western diet was driving that insulin resistance, but like, I didn't know what. And I really didn't understand what was going on until 2006. Until that point, it was still about, I mean, it was about insulin. I knew it was about insulin, but I didn't know what the driver of the insulin resistance was. In 2006, I was asked to uh, participate in a NIEHS symposium, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. And they wanted to construct the two-day symposium where the first day was about their successes, which were uh, lead poisoning and pollution and asthma. And the second day was going to be about new challenges, which the morning was going to be about obesity and metabolic syndrome, and the afternoon was going to be about ADD and autism. And they asked me to talk in the obesity section. They asked me, what environmental pathogen do you think is the most relevant to obesity and metabolic syndrome? That was their question to me. 2006. 2006. I can't guess. And I said, what the hell am I going to say? <laughs> yeah, am I going to talk about BPA? Or am I going to talk about phthalates? Or am I going to talk about, you know, uh, plasticizers or, you know, polydiphenyl ethers? Or am I going to talk about uh, genistein? Or what am I going to, you know, estrogens in the environment? What am I going to talk about? Yeah, you know, I looked at the data and it's like, yeah, I mean, all those things are true, but they're not like the big thing. And I thought to myself, all right, let, let, let's rethink this. What diseases today do kids have that they never had before? And the answer was type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. What used to be the cause of type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease in adults? And the answer was before 19... 80, the answer was alcohol. But kids don't drink alcohol. Is there something else that's metabolized like alcohol? And then I remembered, you know, I was a biochem major in college, at MIT. I pulled out my Leninger from 1974 and I started looking at the pathways and I said, holy crap. Fructose is metabolized like alcohol. Fructose, half of sugar. You know, the sweet molecule and sugar is metabolized differently. And I called my friend Jean-Marc Schwartz, who is now my long-term collaborator. And I said, Jean-Marc, let's go through the pathways here. One time, just to satisfy me. Is it possible that fructose and glucose are being handled by the liver differently and that fructose is driving the fat accumulation in the same way alcohol would? And we basically did a little, you know, mini retreat the two of us, you know, going through the pathways and what was known. And, you know, at the end of the thing, he said, oh my God, you're right. Fructose is a toxin. All right. So let's unpack it a little bit because I think it, uh, this is a pretty important. So fructose, just for people who don't understand. So let's start with table sugar, sucrose. Mm -hmm. Sucrose is what? So sucrose is a disaccharide, meaning two sugar molecules bound together. A saccharide is a six carbon ring. And there are three of them. There's glucose, there's galactose, and then there's fructose. Every carbohydrate is made up 
of some manifestation of those three in any way, shape, or form. That's what they are. The question is, what's the build, you know, how are they built and what takes them apart and then what happens to them once they get uh, split apart? So glucose is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet burns glucose for energy. Glucose is so goddamn important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. The Inuit, they didn't have any carbohydrate. They didn't have any place to grow a carbohydrate. They had ice. They had whale blubber. They still had a serum glucose level. That was shown in 1928. They still had a serum glucose level, even though they consumed no carbohydrate, because glucose is so important that your liver will take fat or protein and turn it into glucose in order to give you a serum glucose level. So while the food industry says you need sugar to live, you don't need dietary sugar to live. You need a blood sugar to live. True. But you don't need a dietary sugar to live. And they very specifically confuse and conflate that concept. And we can talk about what the industry does to try to foment misunderstanding. Because I think they do it. I'm pretty sure they do it on purpose. So glucose is pretty important. Now, galactose is in milk sugar. It, so when you have a glucose and galactose, that forms lactose. Lactose is milk sugar. It's what's in human milk, cow's milk, etc. And there's an enzyme in your intestine that cleaves the glucose from the galactose. It's called lactase. It's what everyone is lactose intolerant is missing is that enzyme. And then there's this third molecule, fructose. So sucrose is glucose and fructose. The enzyme sucrase in your intestine cleaves the glucose from the fructose. You absorb both molecules together. Now, glucose remembers the energy of life. It goes all over the body. It goes to the brain, goes to the kidney, goes to the muscle, goes to the liver, goes to the intestine, goes anywhere you want, okay? Because every cell can burn it. Fructose, on the other hand, goes to the liver. And the liver then takes that fructose and can do one of two things with it. It can either burn it for energy, which it can. I'm not saying it can't, it can. If you are energy depleted, it definitely does that. And it kind of does it preferentially if, it, if you're energy depleted. So if you're a football player on the gridiron and you've been exercising for three hours and you are now glycogen depleted because, you know, you, you know, the liver starch that, you know, normally is carried around in your liver has all been burned off because you've been exercising so severely. You can drink a sports drink and you will replete your glycogen faster, which is why they sell sports drinks. However, what if you're not? What if you're not glycogen depleted? What if you're like a mere mortal like me and you drink a sports drink? Then what happens? Well, turns out the fructose isn't getting burned. What's happening is it's going straight down to the mitochondria because only the liver will be able to metabolize the fructose. It doesn't stop at glycogen. It goes straight to the mitochondria. The mitochondria become overwhelmed, have no choice but to take the excess and turn it into liver fat. Then that liver fat has one of two fates. It can either be exported out, in which case your serum triglyceride rises, which is a potential risk factor for heart disease and also substrate for obesity, or it won't be exported out, in which case it will precipitate as a lipid droplet, cause fatty liver disease. Now it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and 
your liver will become dysfunctional, insulin resistant, therefore driving your pancreas to make more insulin to make the liver do its job. And now you've set in motion the entire litany of chronic metabolic diseases that we know today. Let's just tackle one sort of practical thing, which is that other than in soda, where they add it as high fructose corn syrup, one of the other places you find a lot of fructose is in fruit. And this is an, this is an area that's confusing to patients and friends and people. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about, is there a distinction between the fructose that you eat in fruit and is that as bad as what you get out of a soda? Right. So the food industry says a calorie is a calorie and a sugar is a sugar. Absolutely not true. So number one, glucose and fructose are different than I've already explained how. And it turns out fructose in fruit, because not because of the fructose molecule itself, but because of the fiber that comes with it, is different from fructose that is separate from the fiber. So fruit juice and fruit are not the same because of the fiber. So here's how it works. The molecule fructose is the molecule fructose, whether it's in fruit or whether it's in, you know, honey or whether it's in agave or whether it's in high fructose corn syrup. The molecule is the same. It's irrelevant what the source is. The molecule is the same. But the question is, did you absorb it? Not did you eat it. Did you absorb it? If you absorb it, it's the same. If it gets to the liver, it's the same wherever it came from. The question is, did it get absorbed? Did it get to the liver? And that's where the vehicle that the fructose came in matters. So fruit has fiber. Now, fruit doesn't have one fiber. Fruit has two. It has something called insoluble fiber or cellulose, stringy stuff in celery, you know, like the pulp, you know, in the grapefruit when you turn into grapefruit juice. Now, most people throw the pulp in the garbage, right? Turns out that was actually pretty important. And soluble fiber. Now, the soluble fiber is globular. It's not stringy. It's globular, like, you know, plug holes. So that's like pectins, like what holds jelly together. So did you know there was fiber in jelly? Well, there is. Okay. It's soluble fiber, not insoluble fiber. And I can prove it. Anybody take Metamucil? So Metamucil swells up, becomes a gel, right? Well, that's what's happening in jelly. That's why it's called jelly. (laughs) So you need both. You need the insoluble fiber and the soluble fiber. Here's how I you know, explain it to people. You have a spaghetti colander, you know, metal contraption with holes in it, lattice work. All right? You, you run water, goes right through. Okay, now take a glob of petroleum jelly and throw it into the middle of this colander. Run the water. Still runs through. It bounces off the petroleum jelly. Now take your finger and smear the petroleum jelly all throughout the inside of the colander. Now run the water. Stays in. You've created a secondary barrier that prevents the water from running through. Well, this is what soluble and insoluble fiber together do. So you need both fibers in order to accomplish this trick. And you also need the geometry the geometry matters. So when you have both, which is what's in real fruit, 
the insoluble fiber will form a lattice work like a fishnet on the inside of your duodenum, the first part of your intestine. The soluble fiber, like the pectins and uh, inulin and what have you, will plug the holes in that lattice work. And together, they will form an insoluble secondary barrier on the inside of your intestine. And you can actually see it on electron microscopy, a whitish gel that occurs that basically prevents early digested mono and disaccharides like fructose, glucose, sucrose, etc. And also starch, you know, being broken down into its component glucoses from being absorbed early. Well, that protects your liver. That means that those mono and disaccharides are not going straight to your liver to drive that de novo lipogenesis, that new fat making, and therefore the chronic disease. You are protecting your liver. Well, if you don't absorb it early, then what happens to it? Well, it goes further down the intestine to the next part, the jejunum, the ileum. And what's in the jejunum and ileum that wasn't in the duodenum? The bacteria, the microbiome. Well, the microbiome, they got to eat something. The question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? And if you're transporting it further down the intestine, they've got a fair shot at it. And so they're going to take what didn't get absorbed early, and they're going to chew it up for their own metabolic purposes. In which case, even though you ate it, even though it passed your lips, it didn't pass your gut. That's why a calorie is not a calorie, because if you ate it with its requisite fiber, which all food that has carbohydrate has, it wasn't for you. It was for your bacteria. You are feeding your bacteria. And what we have learned is that those are the two precepts that confer health. Protect the liver, feed the gut. Protect the liver, feed the gut. And the thing that does that is fiber. So real food works because it comes with its inherent fiber. Processed food is fiberless food. So the thing that protects us and the thing that feeds our bacteria is gone. Processed food kills. Real food saves lives. Processed food makes you sick. Real food makes you healthy. Problem is, that's not what the food industry is selling. Okay, so in a sense, what's happening is that the fiber is acting almost like the equivalent of a gastric bypass. Basically, it's causing malabsorption. And you could say that. In some ways, you're just skipping the proximal duodenum. And you could say that. And so, do you make a distinction between, say, the fruit of berries versus the fruit of bananas or do you not really care yeah i mean you know i mean when you get down into the weeds if you did a scattergram uh, of all the fruits that are in the world today and you plotted fructose content on the y-axis and fiber content on the x-axis that'd be pretty much a diagonal line with a couple of you know shall we say notable exceptions like grapes right grapes are little bags of sugar they have very little fiber But pretty much everything else is on there. So God made it so that whatever the toxin was, it came with its requisite antidote. Okay? It's not the vehicle that matters. It's the payload, if you will. So the fructose is the problem, but the fiber basically mitigates the metabolic aftermath. So you make a distinction between juice, for sure, and whole fruit. But for your children or your patients or your friends or colleagues, do you make a distinction? Do you say that there's such a thing as potentially too much fruit? Yeah. So, you know, there are these fruitarians out there. Um, Fruit is self-limiting. 
And I have never seen any data that said that fruitarians are metabolically ill, as long as they eat the whole fruit and not the, you know, just drink the juice. I think there probably is too much, but I can't prove that there's a problem. So I'm loath to, you know, talk about this problem with no data. You know, I think it's fine. I think ultimately fruit is self-limiting. I mean, my colleague and uh, uh, cookbook co-author, Cindy Gershon, uh, who is a nutrition uh, educator in the East Bay, um, first day of every semester, she takes two kids from her the cooking class, you know, the 10th graders. They're learning how to actually cook for, you know, for, you know, as a job, you know, for profession. And she takes two kids and she hands the first kid six oranges. And she says, here, kid, here's six oranges, make juice. Kid squeezes the six oranges, gets 12 and a half ounces, downs the whole thing, says, okay, what's for breakfast? Second kid, she says, here, kid, here's six oranges. Eat the six oranges. Kid eats orange number one, orange number two, orange number three. Gets to orange number four and throws up every time. Orange number four. And goes, I'm going to die. And then that kid doesn't eat lunch or dinner. What happened? The fiber happened. The fiber was self-limiting. The fiber provided so much bulk and moved the food through the intestine so much more rapidly that they got the satiety signal sooner. So one orange might have 30 calories, but it has all that fiber. Whereas a glass of orange juice has 120 calories and essentially no fiber. I mean, the soluble fiber is there, but the insoluble is not. So it basically, without the two together, it's like it wasn't there at all. So I don't think whole fruit is the problem. I think if we just left it at whole fruit and not at you know fruit juice or fruit drinks, I think we'd all be just fine. Okay, let's turn the... I didn't think I was going to go there, but let's turn the question around a little bit. There's a diet that's become super popular that I'm sure you've heard of where people are doing nothing but eating meat. Yep. And, uh, and the carnivore movement has really exploded in the last couple of years. Yep. And, and one of the arguments that they hear is, well, you need fiber to survive. And they say, well, I'm doing fine without fiber. I don't want to go too far down this rat hole, but, but what, do you, uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, you know, you're talking about the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet the or just the, the pure- severe low-carb diet. You know, there's nothing in it that says no fiber. There are plenty of green vegetables that are non-caloric that have plenty of fiber. Nothing about what Atkins uh, promulgated said anything about not having any fiber. Um, I think fiber is essential. Not essential to you. It's essential to your bacteria. That's what I think. So you can be paleo or ketogenic and still get plenty of fiber. In fact, uh, there was a paper in the BMJ uh, not too long ago that basically demonstrated how much fiber there was in a paleo slash ketogenic diet. And there can be plenty. So if you're on one of those diets and you're not consuming fiber, that's your own problem. It's your own fault. It's not because of the diet. It's because of you. It's, they're not mutually exclusive. One question I get asked by my patients all the time is about the relative harms of artificial sweeteners versus table sugar, specifically as it relates to metabolism. Rob thinks that sweeteners are better, or maybe less toxic than sugar, but they're not all good. So maybe best-known method here 
is have the occasional treat, but don't expect that artificial sweeteners absolve all the risk of sugar. Just the last thing on nutrition, and this comes up a lot, um, people ask me questions. So what what about artificial sweeteners? So if we're going to keep sugar, we're going to try and keep sugar out of added sugar out of our diet. We're going to try when we have sugar to make sure it's paired with fiber, which is going to act as the antidote. And this doesn't even get into the specifics of, you know, how much carbohydrate you eat or don't eat during the day. But, but what do you do if you like the taste of something sweet and you want to add an artificial sweetener? Right. So everybody wants to. Yes. <laughs> well, me too. Uh, the data is actually starting to come in. Um, I used to say we don't know. I actually think we kind of now we're starting to get to the point where we do know. The empiric data says that one sugared soda is metabolically equivalent to two diet sodas. It's half as bad. Not good. Half as bad. The question is, well, no calories, so how can it be half as bad? It should be way better, right? Well, because it has nothing to do with the calories. I keep saying calories, not a calorie. <laughs> and no one keeps, no one's listening. But it, no, I mean, we now have mechanistic data as to like why uh, artificial sweeteners might not be so good. So first question, you put something sweet on the tongue. What happens? Message goes tongue to brain. Sugar bolus is coming. Brain goes tongue, uh, brain to pancreas. Sugar bolus is coming. Get ready to release the insulin through that vagus nerve that we talked about earlier. But then the sugar bolus never comes because it was a diet sweetener. What does the pancreas do? Does it go, oh man, I was waiting for that. I guess I'll just wait till tomorrow. Or does it go, you know, I got all these insulin vesicles sitting here ready to explode. I'm going to go find me some calories to work on. Turns out, looks like it's the latter. And there are a couple of studies that now demonstrate that. That's the latter. We don't have chronic studies. We have acute studies, but at least the acute studies say that that's what happens. And if that's true, then basically it doesn't matter that the diet sweetener was a diet sweetener because what it's going to do is it's going to store energy because the insulin went up anyway. So if the insulin goes up, you're going to store energy and it doesn't matter what hit the tongue. That's issue number one. Issue number two. This has only been shown in animals so far. Um, this is work from Elenov's group, uh, Weitzman in Israel. But they showed that diet sweeteners have its own effects on the microbiome, causing leaky gut and glucose intolerance all by itself, having nothing to do with calories. If that's true in humans, that could explain a lot in terms of metabolic dysfunction associated with diet soda consumption. And number three, and this was really early, and I haven't even seen the paper yet. It was just an abstract at a meeting. But it suggests that the data looked at adipocytes directly and diet sweetener effects on adipocytes and suggested that it causes all sorts of adipocyte dysfunction and uh, metabolic perturbation. Now, the question is, does the diet sweetener get to the adipocyte? Does it get absorbed? You know, or does it stay in the gut? Well, you know, there's some data that suggests that some of it gets absorbed, and maybe more of it gets absorbed if you have leaky gut, which the diet sweetener might cause. And if that's the case, then maybe it causes metabolic dysfunction directly at the adipocyte. And we have a long way to go to prove that. We haven't done that yet. But the bottom line is, the empiric data says, and there was just a paper that came out like two months ago in circulation, that 
However many sugared sodas you drink, drink twice as many diet sodas and you'll end up in the same place. So I don't know that that's the best answer. Do you think there's a difference between the different sweeteners or do you think they're all pretty much the same? I think they're all pretty much the same, especially in terms of the tongue issue, you know, the, the insulin response. I don't think it matters. And actually, we have data on sucralose, monk fruit, and aspartame to show that the insulin response is virtually identical. So I don't think it matters much. Well, one of the things, you know, I'm relatively new in my career to metabolism having spent the first chunk of my life studying blood clotting thrombosis. And one of the things that I've learned in the you know 10 years that we've been doing this is that we're, we have a lot to learn. So I think, why don't we, let's leave this, this complicated story and talk about the more recent contribution that you've made and, and this book. If you haven't, people haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And I think the title is The Hacking of the American Mind. Is that right? That is, yeah. That's it. And I didn't know until today or at least I hadn't pieced it together, that this really connects all parts of of your life, of your career. Sort of, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, so, I mean, in, in 10 words or less, the first book I wrote called Fat Chance was about diet and physical health. And this book, Hacking the American Mind, is really about diet and behavioral health, um, addiction and depression. So maybe the first thing you could do, Rob, is just tell us, and you've, I've heard you speak about this before, so I know I, I think I know what you're going to say, but tell us about the difference between happiness and pleasure. So uh, let me tell you why I wrote the book first, and then I can sort of springboard into the differences. So I've known about this issue of dopamine and serotonin, which is what the book's about, uh, for 30-some-odd years. I actually learned about it at Rockefeller way back. Uh, but we didn't have the human data. We didn't have the neuroimaging, you know, we didn't have the PET scanning. We didn't have any of that back then. You know, the, the notion that dopamine affected serotonin and vice versa was sort of like nobody cared because nobody really knew what they did. And we hadn't really worked out the addiction circuit yet. And so we didn't know what the, the relevance was. But I've had this in the back of my head for a lot of years. In 2014, I was giving grand rounds in psychiatry in uh, uh, American Medical School down south. Let's leave it at that. And they gave me a tour of the outpatient facility. This lady who runs the outpatient facility was a former heroin addict, and she was showing me around. And so I was, you know, just breaking the ice and talking. I asked her what getting clean meant to her. And she said something that was really jarring, really sort of took me aback and made me stop in my tracks. She said, and there's a direct quote, when I was shooting up, I was happy. What my new life has given me is pleasure. I'm looking at her. I didn't say a thing because, you know, I'm the guest. I'm going, that lady, that's exactly 180 degrees around. That's exactly wrong. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, gee, how'd she get that so wrong? Maybe that's why she was an addict because she got it wrong because she didn't know the difference. I thought to myself, you know, I'm not an addiction specialist per se. I mean, I, I take care of kids with obesity, and a lot of them are sugar addicted, which is why I'm talking at this American Medical School in psychiatry is about sugar addiction. But I'm not like an addiction specialist. I don't know anything about heroin or, you know, or cocaine or anything else. But I'm, I'm, this is just not right. So I get home. I get here. 
back to UCSF, and I call up some friends in psych, and I say, yeah, you ever hear of this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, that, that's common uh, uh, phrasing. I thought to myself, that's really weird. And it didn't stick with me yet. I mean, it was jarring, but not motivating yet. And then I was on the phone with my sister-in-law in Minneapolis, and she used to work for Pillsbury before General Mills took it over. And she had since long, you know, gone from there. But her group from Pillsbury still had a gourmet club that met like once a month. And one of the ladies in that gourmet club had had bariatric surgery. And she said to my sister-in-law, you always stay so nice and thin. How do you do that? And my sister-in-law didn't know quite what to say. Huh? I just eat when I'm hungry. And she said, Hungry? Who's hungry? Eating is about happiness. And I heard this story and I went, oh, crap. (laughs) This is a common refrain. This is like a big deal. And so I said, you know, there's a book here. So I wrote the book because the data were now in to sort of demonstrate how this works. So your question, what are the differences between pleasure and happiness and how do we get it so wrong? Um, I think there are seven differences between pleasure and happiness. One, pleasure is short-lived, happiness is long-lived. Two, pleasure is visceral, you feel it in your body, happiness is ethereal, you feel it above the neck. Three, pleasure is taking, happiness is giving. Four, pleasure is achieved alone, happiness is usually achieved in social groups. Five, pleasure is achieve, can be achieved with substances. Happiness cannot be achieved with substances. Six, the extremes of pleasure, whether it be substances or behaviors, so substances like cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, or behaviors, shopping, gambling, social media, internet gaming, pornography. In the extreme, all lead to addiction. There's an aholic after every one of those. Shopaholic, sexaholic, chocoholic, alcoholic, etc. Whereas there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And number seven, pleasure is dopamine, happiness is serotonin. So two different neurotransmitters, two different sets of receptors, two different areas of the brain, two different regulatory pathways, two different mechanisms of action. Like, who cares? So what? You know, academic curiosity, right? No, I don't think so. I think it matters. Why? Well, here's why. Dopamine is excitatory. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter. Every time dopamine binds to its D2 receptor, the next neuron fires. Now, neurons like to be excited. That's why they have receptors in the first place. And so dopamine receptor positive neurons like to be excited because that's why they have dopamine receptors. But they like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. They like a quick burst and then they like to go to rest. Just like we talked about the adrenergic nervous system before. Same thing. Okay. Quick burst, go to rest. Chronic overstimulation of any neuron leads to neuronal cell death. And we know this because as a pediatrician, I had to take care of plenty of kids in the neurointensive care unit 
that were in chronic status epilepticus with nonstop seizures that we had to put into coma to stop their neurons from firing because the longer their seizure went, the more neurons they lost and the more delayed they ended up. So chronic overstimulation of a neuron is not good. Brain damage. Brain damage. So dopamine excites the next neuron. Chronic dopamine causes neuronal cell death. So the receptor positive neuron, the second neuron in the sequence, they have a plan B. They have a self-defense mechanism. They downregulate the number of receptors. So there's less likelihood that any dopamine molecule will find a receptor to bind to, thereby limiting the gain. So this is the law of mass action, or, and in, in human terms, it's called tolerance. So in human terms, you get a hit, you get a rush, the receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush, and the receptors go down, and they need a bigger hit, bigger hit, bigger hit, until finally huge hit to get nothing. That's tolerance. And then when the neurons actually do start to die, that's addiction. And the thing about those neurons is they're not coming back. So once you lose those neurons, they're not coming back, which is one of the reasons why there's so much relapse with addiction, because those neurons are not coming back. Now, that's dopamine. Serotonin, the other neurotransmitter, the happiness neurotransmitter, is inhibitory. It's not excitatory, it's inhibitory. Now, if you're inhibiting the next neuron, are you going to kill it? No. So do you have to downregulate the serotonin receptor? No. So you can't overdose on too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin. Dopamine. Dopamine. So the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get, which is what the book is about. And companies like the beverage companies, the food companies, etc., and also the technology companies, etc., they have confused and conflated pleasure with happiness on purpose, so you don't know the difference. Just like that reformed drug addict uh, down south. She didn't know the difference. They don't want you to know the difference, because if you knew the difference, then you might think otherwise. So this was a sort of a nugget of truth that explained a lot, explained what was going on in terms of why the food industry was putting all the sugar in all the food, why alcohol is such a problem still, why people are vaping, why, you know, um, uh, as, as uh, SSRI use has gone down, marijuana use has gone up. You know, all of this comes from understanding the neurochemistry of these two ostensibly positive emotions that we both care about, but get wrong. Uh, a, a famous um, experiment that uh, Richard Layard, uh, who's one of the economists who, you know, first divvied out this whole happiness thing way back in the British economist, you know, one of the experiments he did, you know, in, in college students, you know, he said, which would you rather be? Which would you rather have? Would you rather have $50,000 when everyone else had $25,000? Or would you rather have $100,000 while everyone else had $200,000? I think I know what the answer was. You know the answer. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not about what you have. It's what everyone else has. And if that's what's driving you, there's never enough. Is that, that's dopamine? That's dopamine. All right. So before we get too far off track, I want to do two things with our time we have left. One is I want to hear from you what you do to optimize your happiness. So what are the things that you look for? And I know we all struggle with, no one's solved this problem. If we had, we'd be, we wouldn't be here. But what do you look for? What are the things you're looking for to really optimize your happiness? And we can leave pleasure alone. We'll come back to that in a second. Okay. So there are four things in the book okay. and I try to practice them. They are hard. They are hard, but they're free. So you can practice them and it won't cost you anything as opposed to say like golf okay. or skiing where you have to you know, practice costs money. Um, the four things in the book, I call, I call them the four C's. The first is connect. And that does not mean Facebook. That means face-to-face, eye-to-eye connection, conversation, empathy. Um, why? Why does it have to be face-to-face, eye-to-eye? Why can't it be digital? Why can't it be, you know, um, uh, Zoom conferences, etc.? Because there's a set of neurons in the back of your head called mirror neurons in the occipital lobe. You can record from Torsten Wiesel did many years ago. And what they are are neurons that transduce the facial expressions of the person you're talking to. And when that signal is transduced, you adopt the emotions of the person you're talking to. And we have a name for this process. It's called empathy. That's what empathy is. Adopting the emotions of the person you're talking to. The thing is that you have to get it triggered. It gets triggered through face-to-face. It's very hard to be empathetic um, you know, over a, uh, over a telephone line. You get it face-to-face. Why? Well, Paul Ekman, right over there at UC Berkeley, famous clinical psychologist who went to Papua New Guinea back in the 60s. These people never saw a white person, but they had the exact same facial expressions as we did for the same emotions. Where'd they learn them from? They're baked in. They're part of our DNA. Because this is how we communicated before there was language. And it's still there. And that's how you generate empathy. And that's how you generate serotonin. But you have to be in contact direct. So conversation works. Religion works because you have a meeting place. You meet, you know, see the people. You know, there are 4,200 religions on the planet. And you can say none of them work or all of them work. Okay? They all work because they all have one thing in common, a meeting place. Every religion has a meeting place. That's because that's where the serotonin comes from. Number two, second C, contribute. And that does not mean to your IRA. It does not mean to your bank account. It has to be outside of yourself, giving to others. And that can be in different forms. It can be philanthropy. It can be altruism, volunteerism. Now, everyone wants to know, can you do it through work? And the answer is yes, with two provisos. One, you can see how your work helps others. And two, your boss can see it too. And if the both of those are, um, are achieved, then you can achieve your contribution and your happiness through work. Number three, cope. And cope is sleep, mindfulness, and exercise. So sleep degrades your serotonin, ups your dopamine, is sort of the antithesis 
of happiness. Um, can increase pleasure. Ask any cocaine addict. Um, opioids too. But um, ultimately, sleep is essential and we are not getting enough sleep. 35% of adults get less than seven hours of sleep a day and 23% are clinical insomniacs. And that degrades happiness. Number two, mindfulness. Uh, now, you can either do one thing or you can do nothing. Both of those will exercise your prefrontal cortex. But as soon as you do more than one thing, two things, your prefrontal cortex goes into hibernation. And that's the part of your brain that keeps you from doing stupid things. And when your prefrontal cortex is in hibernation, you do a lot of stupid things. Turns out, people think multitasking is good. It is not. First of all, only 2.5% of the population can actually multitask. The other 95, 7.5% are smoke and mirrors. You know, they're serially unitasking. And every time they switch from one task to the other, they get a cortisol bump, which fries their prefrontal cortex, and they lose 23 minutes of concentration, which is not a way to live. And then finally, exercise. And it turns out exercise raises serotonin, tamps down dopamine, Mindfulness plus exercise is as good as any SSRI at alleviating depression, if you can do it. SSRI? Serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So increasing serotonin. Increasing serotonin. That's Zoloft. Zoloft, yeah. Paxil, uh, uh, Prozac, etc. Uh, Celexa, Lexapro, all those guys. And then finally, number four, my favorite, Cook. Because there are three items in food that actually matter. First is tryptophan. Tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin. It is the rarest amino acid in the diet. And it's in fish, poultry, eggs. Not exactly fast food. And most people are serotonin deficient. And if you're serotonin deficient, you are irritable. Um, number two... Omega-3s. Omega-3s are in marine life and, you know, salmon and flax, basically. And those are anti-inflammatory, anti-Alzheimer's, and they improve serotonin neurotransmission. And then finally, fructose, where too much causes serotonin depletion. And, you know, less of it means serotonin goes up. So, basically, what you want is a high tryptophan, high omega-3, low fructose diet. That's called real food. And what we have is the opposite. We have a low tryptophan, low omega-3, high fructose diet. That's called processed food. Okay, so you got you, we, we did four C's. Yep. The first was connect, and that's actually getting together face-to-face. -face face-to-face. Other human beings. Yep, human beings. Maybe even a dog. Uh, dogs are good. Yeah. Dogs are good. The second C was contribute. Mm -hmm. So this is have a sense of mission. Right. Purpose, mission, you know. Cope. This is sleep, exercise, mindfulness. mindfulness. Yep. And the last one is cook. So eat, eat healthy, whole food. Real food. Real food. Got it. Now, meaning and mission are all in one bucket, and that, that comes into your second one, into this contribute one. Mm -hmm. That one's critical. Mm -hmm. It is, it what is about, critical. What about this balance? I think I've heard you talk about this before between understanding the benef relative benefits of process and product. Where does that fit? So the idea is that... Um, Sometimes people become obsessed with the product, say, a grade, as opposed to the process of ah, learning. Well, so, I mean, you know, ha again, this has to do with, you know, 
the destination or the journey. Uh, everyone will tell you, you know, uh, it's the journey that matters. You know, that's what life is. And you better take, uh, you know, advantage of that. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily know where you're going. <laughs> I am a great believer in deriving the happiness from everyday experiences. The problem is that's not what um, advertisers or companies or, you know, even the federal government wants from you. They want your money. Well, that's not what we're measured on, right? We're measured on metrics, yeah. not on. But I think this is a pretty important point. And I think I see it in in multiple areas. One one area I think that I've seen it is in science. And while we're rewarded for the product, if you go into science as a career because you want, want to win and you don't like the day-to-day, you're not going to do very oh, well. Oh, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, scientists are a rare breed because – they're not getting a lot of bennies. All the bennies are um, internal. You have to generate your own. You know, I mean, you get a grant, that's great. But ultimately, you have to be comfortable in your own skin with the process. And that is a tough order for a lot of people. And I'm not going to tell you it's not. Uh, same for medicine, you know, science and medicine, both. Um, you have to generate your own internal happiness. Cooking, too. Cooking, too. This is the thing I try and tell my kids. It's not just about eating the meal when it's done. you got to enjoy the chopping of the vegetables. If you don't, then you're not going to be well, enjoying cooking. The point is, the point is um, cooking should be mindful. You should not be thinking of five things at once while you're cooking. And the great thing about cooking is because you're following a recipe, you usually are mindful. Because you want to get it right and you want it to taste good at the end. And you also put love into it, you know, and you share it with your family members. So as far as I'm concerned, preparing a meal and sharing it with your family is connecting and contributing and coping and cooking all at once. I mean, it's kind of like the quadrifecta, you know, uh, the superfecta. It's all the things, you know, that generate happiness all at once. Um, that's, you know, where I think the, the, and, and it's something that everyone can do and should. I have a story that I, I love to tell people who, who are around me long enough are tired of hearing it, but I'll tell you, cause I think you'll get a kick out of it. And I don't think I've told you, which is I've been interviewing applicants to our cardiology fellowship for almost 20 years now. And I had an applicant come through I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And he, he told me that on the way out, he stopped to visit friends in Salt Lake city, Utah, and they went backcountry skiing. So I've skied my whole life, not my whole life, my whole adult life. I've never gone backcountry skiing. So I asked him, I said, what did, what did you think? And he stopped and he said, that's interesting. You know, my friends who live in Utah, one of the things is you realize when you do this backcountry skiing thing that it's about 95% climbing up the mountain and about 5% skiing down. And what I noticed is that they liked the climbing up part as much or more as they liked the skiing down part. Mm-hmm. I just really liked the skiing down part. Right. And that to me sort of cut, like really crystallized this, this difference between happiness and pleasure process and product and all these right. different things we've been talking about. Well, you know, um, ultimately contentment and reward. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they had fun doing the hard part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. That's special. Um, all right. I have a question for you. It's a, it's a, um, one of the hypotheses that I have been 
obsessed with over the past couple of years. And I think you've made a really eloquent argument about how this technology is basically this dopamine machine and we're all looking for these likes and other things through social media. So I guess, and I think we probably would agree that the technology industry has learned just as many other industries how, how to manipulate this for their benefit. Indeed they have. So here's my question is, can we take what they've learned and apply it to something more meaningful? I couldn't agree more. So and what I'm asking you is, can we re-engineer addiction? Yes. I understand completely. And the answer is, I hope so. I think so. Maybe. Um, funny you should ask that because uh, just two weeks ago, I was in Paris and I was at a uh, unit of the Paris Descartes University called the Center for Research and Interdisciplinarity. And it's written by one of the most brilliant people on the planet, Francois Tade. And he has, he, he's a, a systems biologist who basically has gone into education. Because he said, basically, if you don't educate the, the children, um, you know where. I mean, he, he, you know, he gets it. He's totally gets it. What a nice guy. And, and his whole, he's, he's basically developed this unit into a, um, mini MIT. It was, uh, you know, again, process over product and, um, the students and the teachers working, you know, hand in hand and everyone's at the same level and everyone's on board. And I, I, I just felt an immediate, uh, uh, affinity. And he said to me, you know, that they have a, a unit that's a, that actually works um, on video games for children to impart education and also to sort of combat this whole technology addiction, which is one of the reasons they invited me. And he said, you know, we should be able to engineer a video game that drives serotonin instead of dopamine. And I thought to myself, Maybe. Maybe you could do that. So he wants to explore it. I'm interested. We'll see. That's that's cool. So I mean you you know my theory, or sort of we have this idea that maybe we can get people maybe it's not the final step, but it's a step along the way, get people to use the energy they're using right now, liking things on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter to at least be driving something positive in their own behavior. I think it could be done. I think right now there's no value to the technology industry in doing that because their business model is about eyeballs, not about happiness. And I think it has to be re-engineered. And so, you know, that there is this um, move afoot here in the Bay Area and also nationally called the Center for Humane Technology. Tristan Harris, who was a former uh, uh, design ethicist at Google, Roger McNamee, who was one of the original investors in Facebook, who has basically come out against the company, um, have started this nonprofit. I am an advisor to it, and we are trying to develop a coder's code of ethics and a list of harms that the that developers need to take into account and basically have to demonstrate that any product that they come out with is good for people, not bad. Technology is a tool. Tools can be used for good or for bad. Okay, Nuclear technology can be used to make reactors or bombs. Hammers can be used to hammer a nail or hammer a skull. You know, you, you, you know it's how you use it. 
Ultimately, there's nothing inherently bad or good about technology. It's what you do with it. Right now, what we're doing with it is a disaster. Well, I think what this comes down to is this word that we've talked about now a couple of times, which is mission. And right, wrong, or indifferent, the mission of these companies early on was to sell ads. And so that was what they organized everything around. The question is- It's only about the money. The question, though, is can we take what they've taught us Mm -hmm. and apply it to something, say- about nutrition or weight loss or in an area. And, and that's something, you know, as you know, that possibly. I'm passionate about. Yes, possibly. I'm not telling you I know that we can do that, but uh, we know what the parameters are and we know what the endpoints should be. So it's possible we might be able to, shall we say, I wouldn't call it reverse engineer it, but we can alternatively engineer it in order to try to accomplish something beneficial. Amazing. Well, listen, this has been, I mean, it's always fun to do this in general and learn about people, but it's super fun to do it with, with great friends. And so I, I can't thank you enough for uh, sitting down with Ethan, me. you know, you are, um, shall we say, a cut above. I mean, I, uh, uh, I love you dearly. You know, you're, 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 you're in the right, you're in it for the right reasons and you're just, um, uh, you're a pleasure. Well, that's, always. that's incredibly sweet. Way too generous. Um, all right. Well, listen, we'll see how this thing turns out. I appreciate you sitting down. <laughs> Always, always. It's probably obvious, but wow is it fun to sit down with smart people, and especially friends like Rob. There have been so many recurring themes in my conversations on this show, and I guess it should not be a surprise. There must be a reason we chose the people we did. Maybe there is a best-known method for finding people to interview on best-known method. Rob Lustig referenced last episode's guest, Roger McNaby. And in fact, many of the things we discussed with Raj last episode came up again this episode. Neither one knew I was interviewing the other. And Roger is a technologist and investor, while Rob is a pediatric endocrinologist and an expert on obesity and metabolism. It's clear to me now that aside from nutrition or science or medicine or tech, the one thing that ties this all together is an attempt to build a better existence for ourselves and for our fellow creatures on this planet. Rob started off his career trying to understand how the brain controls feeding. And then, after a few cracks at running a basic science lab, eventually found a home caring for kids with obesity. He took that and landed smack dab in the middle of the emerging interest in the role of sugar in the worldwide obesity epidemic. And then he decided to write a book, The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. Okay, what? But listen to Rob's life story and it makes perfect sense. After dreaming of being an astronomer, he had always been fascinated with the brain. And as he said, sugar acts on the brain in ways that are similar to cocaine or gambling or even seeking a like on your Twitter post. Perhaps Rob did not intend to come back to the brain. And perhaps he never expected to write a book about the differences between happiness and pleasure and how that's mediated by different chemicals in the brain. But he did. And in doing so, he found a lot of the same things Roger found last episode. And alas, they found each other. I never intended for this to be a podcast about self-help. But there are four key principles in the last segment that I discussed with Rob about happiness that are worth repeating. He calls it the four C's. Number one, connect. Get face-to-face with other human beings. Number two, contribute. Find and cultivate a sense of mission in your life. Number three, cope. This is cultivate habits of sleep, exercise, and mindfulness. And lastly, my favorite, number four, cook. Eat real food, eat whole food, and actually cook it when you can. 
This is Best Known Method.